This is the EWN Podcast Network. Welcome to Late Boomers, our podcast guide to creating your third act with style, power, and impact. Hi, I'm Kathy Worthington. And I'm Mary Elkins. Join us as we bring you conversations with successful entrepreneurs, entertainers, and people with vision who are making a difference in the world. Everyone has a story, and we'll take you along for the ride on each interview, recounting the journey our guests have taken to get where they are, inspiring you to create your own path to success. Let's get started. Hi, I'm Kathy Worthington. Welcome to our latest episode of Late Boomers. Today, we will be talking with Mandy Capehart, an author and speaker, podcast host, and certified grief and life coach, who is the founder of the Restorative Grief Project, an online community of grievers and grief supporters. And I'm Mary Elkins. Mandy's own experience with grief left her searching for resources to offer her empathetic, long-term support without minimizing the pain of the moment. When she found nothing, she created it for herself and for you. Welcome, Mandy. Hi, Mary. Hi, Kathy. Thanks for having me on your show, ladies. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you. We're glad to have you. (laughs) I love the name of your project, Restorative Grief. Can you tell us how you got started on this career path? And did you always know you would do this? I can tell you, I never expected that I would do this. And even though I really love having uncomfortable, confrontational, important, like meaningful conversations, grief was never the area I thought I would work in. So I got involved firsthand when the pandemic hit. I lost my job in 2020 um, and when I think it was probably two minutes into hearing the news that the U S is going into a a shutdown, right. For that two week period. Um, I had this feeling just in my gut that the entire world was about to enter into this untended generational grief. And I didn't want to be a part of that world. I wanted to do whatever it would take, whatever I could do to create a different narrative because up until that year, I had experienced a loss in my life, probably, I mean, enough times that I cannot count all of the people that we lost or situations that changed or just expectations that were unmet. And so leading up to 2020, I had lost more recently my grandfather and my mom and then miscarried. And I was waiting on like the brink of disaster, wondering what's going to make the most sense here because I'm not someone who just says, oh, cool, I have no employment. I'll just relax for a few weeks or months and take it easy. So I decided to instead take my story, distill it down into what worked really well for me and blow up the concept of um, grief as a set of stages. Because most people who work in the industry know that it's linear not or it's cyclical, not linear. Um, but anybody that doesn't work in the industry or hasn't firsthand experienced grief has no idea. And so I just wanted to make sure that whatever it looked like, I could offer a new way of accessing grief literacy. And to me, that looked like restoration for myself and for anybody that I was fortunate enough to work with. Oh, and hence the name. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, tell us about your book, 
restorative grief, embracing our losses without losing ourselves. How difficult was it to write the book during that time? You know, it's kind of like having a baby. You forget how hard it was once it's done and you think this could be fun. I'll do another one someday. Um, (laughs) Because I, the introduction was fairly straightforward for me. The book itself is a 31 day guidebook and kind of a memoir about, like I said, what helped me. Um, But it's also approachable from a lot of different angles because I was at the time heavily involved in my church and recognized the complete lack of grief literacy in the American church. And that to me was such a travesty because it's supposed to be the safest place to fall apart. And here it was with people everywhere who love me, who even knew my mom, even though she wasn't local who knew what we were going through in our family and they had no idea what to do with us. And I'm not the person that goes quietly into the night when things are hard or wrong or bad. I (laughs) got loud and lovingly confrontational to say, this isn't good enough. There has to be a better way. And so the book itself is a, the 31 days are based on the traditional five steps of grief, which are denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance only for the familiarity in the process, because that is the first thing people go to when they're grieving. What step am I at? And for me, I wanted to dismantle the steps by saying you could be at all of the steps at the same time. You're going to experience things very differently. But for me, when I recognize what step quote unquote that I was in, these are the tools I went to. And these are the ways that I strengthened my own faith and my own understanding of, of what it looks like now to move forward and integrate this loss or all of these losses into my story. Was I going to internalize them in a way that made me feel very controlled by them or limited by them? Or was I going to choose to integrate them and become very curious about what it meant for me now? Who do I get to become as a result of these losses versus who do I have to be now that I've lost all these things? And so for me, it, the book has been a really beautiful piece to offer people who are, as long as people aren't hurting from like religious trauma or dealing with any church wounds, it's been a really meaningful resource to be able to just give away copies of it and show up for people who just don't feel like they're being supported. So writing it helped you get through all of it. Significantly. It really helped me fully articulate what I had been going through. So the, my, when I wrote the book or started writing it, my mom had passed away about four years prior and I'd done a lot of work on my own, both in speaking events and working with counselors. And, um, I went on a vertical retreat, which is you're with a bunch of people, but you're all alone. You go out into the woods by yourself and talk to yourself and listen to your music and pray and whatever you want to do. I'd done a bunch of really intense body, um, connection work through CrossFit and trying to revamp eating and doing all of these pieces of restoration that I thought were really meaningful, but they were disparate from my whole self. And so in writing the book, I recognized if I don't pull myself into alignment, mind, heart, body, and spirit, then I'm only pulling a piece of myself back into alignment. There's still going to be a lot of pain that I'm experiencing in these other places. And so the book itself, let me get all of that out on paper feel really confident by the end of it. And as I was finishing it, there was a wildfire in our city, completely annihilated two towns, just all along um, the main strip. And 
I mean, our church became a hub for recovery and it was really, really overwhelming because now here's this community I've been investing in and selling my, you know, talking about my book, it wasn't for sale yet and working with people. And all of a sudden my clients are now all fire survivors. So I was able to really take ownership of my own story and formulate this idea of like, well, I can do this work full time and show up for people, but more than that, teach them how to show up for themselves and for other people to be better grief supporters. Because I mean, you probably wouldn't be surprised, but the immediacy with which our community just said, cool, you found housing. Okay. We don't have to worry about you anymore. Or you've got a place to, you've got food to eat or a place to stay. And it was devastating because to this day, I still work with fire survivors. It's been over two years and they're struggling. That's a huge loss. Yes. significant. And people don't understand that grief has no timeline. In fact, if we can integrate it well, grief will always stay with us. It's part of our story. The active sense of grieving can shift and and comes and goes in seasons, but the reality is grief changes who we are. And so learning how to integrate that into my own story and also teach others how to integrate it has been, it all started with the book for sure. (laughs) Oh, fabulous. What is grief literacy and why is it necessary? Grief literacy is the idea that we simply learn more about loss instead of holding on to old methods or old understandings that we're willing to have these awkward, terrible, uncomfortable conversations about grief, about loss, about suicide, about how death affects us, about how loss isn't limited to death. And the more that we can talk about it, we can, the more we get to disarm platitudes, those statements that actually cause more harm than good, the more we can equip ourselves as well when we're going through big grief events to become really aware of how valuable we are, even when our mind is going a million miles an hour, or we're trying to just do our best, right? But shame creeps in. And so grief literacy helps us disarm the shame and the things that people put on us and try to teach us as ways to get through loss when those things that they have to say are typically so ineffective that we grow, you know, just distant from those people as well. Uh, yeah. That's, that's really true. I mean, uh, retirement is a loss. Um, losing a job is a loss. Every stage of life that you push behind yourself is a loss and, and move, moving on is, is terrifying sometimes. Yeah. You know, I used to actually work with uh, office of financial advisors and they were retirement specialists and we would have people come in completely unclear on what to do. And finances are already one of the scariest things we go through besides our health. And so we had unbelievable opportunities to really encourage and teach people financial literacy so that they felt empowered to do these things on their own. Like, and that's really what my role has become is the same thing is as a grief advisor, so to speak, I'm not helping them. I'm not grieving for them. I'm not telling them what to do. I'm saying you have a lot of options and you are beyond overwhelmed. How can I provide options that actually align with your values? Well, in doing that, I have to know what your values are, or you have to know what your values are. And that way you get to come alongside yourself. It's empowering. And it just, it's one of those things that as grief events come into our lives, like you said, in from every direction, when we are empowered in who we are, we become empowered in the decisions we make. And so while grief will always overturn the apple cart, 
it's not going to feel like it did the first time because we are different humans and we can show up for ourselves a little differently. Or maybe we notice our grief in these places that we would never have noticed it before. And we can address it for ourselves instead of feeling really trapped in those big emotions or big experiences without understanding. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned the five stages before Mm -hmm. what's unhelpful about that model and how can you, how do we deal with it? Well, it was originally developed as a result of, um, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's study and work with terminally ill patients. So in her observational work, she was seeing individuals who were terminally ill come to terms with their diagnosis and their eventual death. And those five steps are the results of her observations, what she saw happening in these individuals. And so as living humans, acceptance of our inevitable demise is not the way we go through an active grief event. It's ineffective because you can say, I accept that this happened and you can distance yourself from judgment about something happening, but there's not really a sense of what next with any amount of direction. There's this kind of like floaty feeling. I like to say that's that's very nebulous and hard to hold on to when you get to that point. And so I, in my opinion, restoration is the next quote, you know, step. And David Kessler, who also worked with um, Kubler-Ross, he's a phenomenal author and grief expert in the world, also came out with a sixth step um, back in 2020, I think, maybe 21, along the same lines. He lost his son and he realized acceptance was garbage and that was never going to be where he could sit. Um, And so he did the same thing. And it was really affirming for me to understand that, okay, there's a national narrative that's changing. That is exactly what I want to see because this idea that we can go through stages leaves us with this idea that there's control in our grief, that we have the ability to say, oh, this is denial. Perfect. Check. Moving on. I will now go to, you know, the next step. And that's just not true. Control is laughable when we are grieving and you know, that's another loss. That's the other side of it is when you are trying to hold on to steps, you don't see the inevitable secondary losses that come along with it. The loss of your security of your community or your sense of self shifts. All of these things radically change when we're grieving and to offer a formula. It's just, it's harmful more than it's helpful. Mm. Can you describe your restorative grief model of grieving? Yeah. So I really approach it from the whole self model. I mentioned it briefly, uh, uh, looking at who we are, heart, mind, body, and spirit. So the way I teach my clients is grief knocks you out of alignment. Your role is to realign yourself. It's not a permanent process. It's not a one and done, you know, this is duct tape that will eventually wear out. (laughs) You have to stay active in the, in the process to remain in alignment and finding what brings you into alignment goes back to finding what values you carry in life. And so because our lives shift and the values that we hold closest shift over time, I I walk a lot of clients through uh, identity work and what matters to them. So in this season of my life, values are very different than what they were 10 years ago. And so when I can sense that I'm 
thinking thoughts that are not helpful. I'm feeling feelings that are not helpful. I'm experiencing emotions that are harmful, or I'm having a spirit that is disconnected or, or just numb or not interested in engaging. Those are signs to me that something is out of alignment. And so I go back then to my values and it's the same thing with my clients. Let's go back to our values. What are we experiencing that doesn't align with our values and how can we shift what we're doing, thinking, saying, feeling, experiencing, or connecting to in order to bring ourselves back into connection with ourselves and people around us. Can and I found it's really an helpful. example of that. Yeah. So let's see. I like to do a lot of body work with clients because grief, and there's so many people writing about this right now. Like there's the Bessel van der Kolk story. Um, your body tells a story or your body keeps the score is the name of his book. And then there's another one by Hillary McBride that she just put out the wisdom of our bodies, because there's an idea, this narrative of body work and um, becoming present is becoming so popular right now. And I'm really excited about it because grief is that thing that will cause migraines, right? Or you won't notice that you're holding your breath. And so for me, embodiment and uh, grace is a huge value. So I look at myself when I realize, oh, my shoulders are up near my ears and I've, I've got fists instead of hands <laughs> and I haven't breathed in 90 seconds. <laughs> I wonder what I'm dealing with and whatever has triggered me, whether it's seeing a picture of someone or recognizing a grief event, something coming live, I do a body scan and it's a very simple uh, way of taking a minute or so to sit comfortably and pay attention, like bring my mind, my attention to the top of my, the crown of my head and to slowly just go down and pay attention. What am I feeling in my eyes? What am I feeling in my jaw? What am I feeling in my shoulders? And knowing that whatever I'm experiencing is giving me simple awareness. I'm not trying to fix anything. I'm just trying to become aware because in grief, we lose, like you mentioned off air, losing an entire year when you have massive grief events. That's so typical because we're just surviving. We're trying to get through it and our minds are doing what they can to protect us from this immeasurable pain that we're experiencing that we can't solve. There's nothing we can do to prevent it or stop it. And so that embodiment, that awareness of your body itself, what you're carrying means that you are actually slowing down your nervous system at the same time, because you're checking in with your entire body. And by the time you get down to your toes, you've spent 60 to 90 seconds, breathing more slowly, coming back into your body, bringing your awareness into your physical self and really embodying this opportunity of presence. And one of the things that I have found is so painful in grief is people trying to remain in the past and hold on to what was or reworking a memory until it's completely different, but it feels comforting um, or looking to the future, trying to control and prevent what could be or living in anxiety about what could come. And one of the big pieces of grief work is learning how to stay present without cultivating a place of pain where you're just staying in the pain and really like overthinking and overanalyzing or staying in a place where you're present, but you're also stuffing everything aside. So gentle things like a body scan can really give you just confidence that you're not incapable. You're not completely shattered and broken. You're actually still a whole being, but everything feels a little chaotic and that's normal. And so as you bring yourself back in 
whether it's heart, mind, body, or spirit, what you're doing is reminding yourself who you are, what you value and how to hold on to that core sense of self as you move forward through this grief event and any grief event to come. Did that make sense? Yes. I get a little off. I get a little it's, it's, ex- no, like it's excited very and helpful. rambly. <laughs> Because okay. it's very helpful to have a concrete thing that someone can stop themselves and do that. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, but how can grievers find the support they need in their communities? Hmm. I wish it was easy. <laughs> the communities we have around us are so well-intentioned most of the time. And that's really the hard part because intention requires so much attention to who you are to someone else. And when people are grieving, I've witnessed that we want to show up. We want to be a comfort, a source of help, um, but we're not always the source that someone needs. And so I think grievers have the responsibility to know who their people are beforehand, if possible. And that's not possible for a lot of us. And so in response to grief events, I like to advise people to find like the core two or three people that you can hold on to including someone who is very happy to push back on all of the people asking questions or wanting to be involved. Um, someone who will say, it's okay that y- thank you for calling, but like, she's good. She doesn't need anything. We've got her taken care of. Um, Cause I don't know about you ladies, but like when my grief events have happened, I struggle when everybody says, let me know if you need something. Because I'm like, <laughs> yeah, guy, I need so much. You everybody, have no comprehension. Everybody yeah. says that. That's all everybody says that they don't know what else to say. Right. And that's, um, it's so painful because it's homework. Now I have the assignment of of figuring out what I need for five different people. So I can't just tell all of them dinner tomorrow night. I have to coordinate. Okay. Dinner tomorrow night. Um, okay. Cleaning my house. Okay. Um, picking up my kid, you know, it's not helpful. So finding the people who can like be your tribe. I like to borrow from Brene Brown because she borrowed from Joan Halifax and she, they both talk about um, strong back, soft front, which is a beautiful model for how you move through the world. And then Brene added uh, wild heart. And I broke those three concepts of self movements through the world into this idea of what if they were each a different person? What if I had someone in my life that was my strong back, that person whose backbone I could borrow, who could push back when people are pushing for questions or details, who would answer the phone when I am freaking done answering the phone and the questions. What if I had someone who had the soft front, who would let me fall apart without any pretense or desire to fix it? No answers, no platitudes, just full on silent compassion. What if I had someone who was a wild heart, who was spontaneous and light and fun and willing to say, I want you to drop what you're doing because I'm taking you on a road trip to the Grand Canyon or someone that was willing to say, it's okay to have sorrow and joy in the same breath. It's okay to be complicated. It's okay to be super confused. I think that those characteristics can of course all be in one person, but the ability to identify what brings someone to life? Like there are people in my life who would never be able to be the strong back for me, but there's someone who would be willing to do it. And so when you're forming your community, this is a long answer, but I think when you're forming and looking in your community about who can support you and who can show up for you, you have to actually invite those people in. It's very important to me that you go to someone and say, Hey, this is what I need. I need someone 
who is going to drop everything and say, let's go have fun today, or at least be thinking of me and reach out and say, would you like to drop everything and go have fun today or do something different than your usual pattern? Because that person will be able to tell you, yeah, I absolutely would love that place in your life. I would love to do that for you because then 12 years down the road or even 12 weeks down the road, when everybody else has stopped calling and asking questions or assumes that you're over it, (laughs) that person will be someone that you can always call on, or that person's going to be someone that checks in on you, that, you know, you're not navigating this alone, even though you feel like you might be. And that's, that to me is the way to kind of disarm the obsessive do-gooder behavior that we see in communities when people are experiencing loss and only when they are experiencing traditional loss. (laughs) I was just going to ask you what advice you'd give to someone who feels alone in their grief. And it sounds like Mm. if you had done the community work ahead of time, but what if you haven't, what if you are alone in your grief? I, you know, in the last two years, we have seen so many people are completely alone and isolated in their Mm -hmm. grief, um, in their lives specifically and life and grief are two sides of the same coin. They're always going to be something that we're carrying with us. And so I wondered about that myself, knowing full well, like I can't go out and just meet strangers the way that I always have. I'm pretty forward and like making friends, but not everybody is like me. There are introverts Mm -hmm. that are afraid of connecting awkwardly like that. And so I went to the internet and just started asking questions. And as I showed up as a person willing to talk about something uncomfortable, I found a lot of people who would say the same thing to me. I'm completely alone. It's nice to hear you say that, but I don't have anyone I could call. My response to that is always this idea of get creative. You're guarded and that's normal. You're scared of being vulnerable. And I get that. The people that have been in your life sound like they're not safe people to be with. And that's really hard to navigate. That might be what you're grieving, but in this day where we have access to celebrity people online, we have access to writers and teachers and therapists and politicians. Everyone is online. There's no reason to hold back and stay isolated. I think that, and again, this is coming from a very forward extroverted person, but I think there's a lot of value in picking or even just observing one person online for a while that seems approachable or the person who says, Hey, my message box is always open. Feel free to reach out to me and actually risking something, risking more pain because it is a risk to be vulnerable to someone, but risking a little bit more on the off chance that you're going to find someone who can actually show up in your corner. Because I will tell you, there have been people that I've met in my work and I've done a lot of my work, most of my work online in the last two years. And there are people I've met who have said nothing to me for two years. And then out of nowhere, I'll get a message that says you have helped keep me sane through the last two years, or your work has been something I've gone to, or I referred my aunt over to you, or, Hey, can you talk to my mom? Can you also talk to my brother and my sister and my kids? (laughs) And the reality is that's a person that says, I see a need in my life and I'm willing to make an awkward question and be like, Hey, can you be my friend? And I know that that's, it's so hard. It's so hard to tell people that community is worth it because it is. But when you've been burned by community, it's a terrifying prospect to try again. And so I think online is a very safe place to do it. It's easy to observe people and they're going to tell on themselves about who they are. You know, eventually they'll say something that makes it very clear if they're a safe person to unpack things with or not. 
Um, and that's the idea behind the restorative grief project actually was creating a private online free community for people to just show up and fall apart together. So there's no platitudes it's self-guided coaching. So there's a ton of my content and journaling prompts and teaching topics that are available for anyone to just take themselves through, but it's also a room full of people, digital room full of people who are going to absolutely have compassion and not try to say, I know how you feel because nobody knows how we feel. That's right. Everybody's different. What, is disenfranchised grief. Oh, heartbreaking. Um, disenfranchised grief is all of the things we talked about that are not a death. It's the breakup. It's the retirement prospect. It's, it's the idea that you change jobs of your own volition and you're grieving and you have no idea. And people around you are saying things like, well, you made this choice or you're the reason you broke up with them. Like, what are you mad about that? idea that those aren't grief events is old and we need to let go of it. And so learning how to identify grief in our lives is the thing that allows us to move through it. Right. So disenfranchising grief in ourselves often looks like, Oh, I'm really sad about this, but there's a war in the Ukraine right now. So yeah, that's right. just minimizing our own pain as if that's what helps us move through. And so anytime somebody talks about I'm kind of like terrible at parties because people will tell me what they're going through or talking about or what they're thinking. And I'm like, Oh, you're grieving. I'm not going to point it out yet because we're at a party, but it's the same thing. And then they'll minimize it away by saying, well, but I'm sure you've gone through worse. And I'm like, that doesn't matter. This is your life. You have every right to fully experience your life, the easy and the hard. Hmm. Well, how can one determine where to begin with their grief story and move toward healing? Hmm. Such an important question, because that's exactly where we land, why we think the five stages are, are meaningful and helpful because we all want a formula, right? We all want to say, oh, cool, I'm lost and here's a map. And I really think it comes back to learning how to observe yourself with some non-judgmental compassion, that ability to recognize that you've just fallen apart and screamed in the grocery store and hold yourself tenderly and hold yourself with the ability to say, well, that was not my character, but I'm going to be okay about it. I'm going to be okay with me right now, because if it was a friend, I would want to show up for them with compassion and learning how to see yourself like that is not a natural thing. We're not trained to hold ourselves gently. We're not expected to give ourselves space to grieve and to fall apart and to push back and ask questions, or maybe drop our commitments. I think a lot of it goes down to the willingness to see yourself as human and not superhuman as fallible and vulnerable and at times fragile and in need. So. Yeah, it's good because I think a lot of us do treat our friends better than we treat ourselves. Oh That's yeah, true. of course we want them to keep us around. And I think that comes from that narrative of just a low understanding of our own value, whether it's the values we hold or the intrinsic value that we have. I've really found and had to do this myself in a lot of friendships realize that, Oh, I treat them better than I treat myself because I don't want them to leave me. Oh my God. I've betrayed myself first. Okay. Mm. So here I am living in fear of betrayal of them, another grief event, and I'm betraying my own self 
and my own values and my own desire to be loved or to be cared for. So getting, you know, I guess therapy, (laughs) that's the (laughs) easiest answer. (laughs) Well, that's, that's powerful. So in other words, we have to learn to show up for ourselves with compassion. Yes. Yeah. Which is hard to do. (laughs) Yeah, it is. We we weren't ever taught that, were we? The opposite, actually. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Stiff upper lip, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are we ever done grieving? And if we are, how do we know it? Mm. I think like the idea that we're ever, we're grieving constantly isn't reasonable because we're not joyful constantly either. And grieving is an action. Grief itself is an emotion and we can experience it. Um, ongoing in waves, but I think the active seasons of grief, of grieving do come to an end. And I think what, for me, what I noticed the most was when my mom first died, I couldn't look at her face. I couldn't look at pictures. It was painful to hear her voice uh, in, in voice messages, or um, even when friends would talk about her, I was so offended that she died and so angry (laughs) that the, the thought of her was so painful. And years, years of wondering if it'll ever change were finally marked by realizing there was a photograph of myself as I was probably less than one sitting on her lap and she was like 22 and it's this beautiful picture. But I look just like my daughter looked as a baby. We're very, very identical. And I showed it to her and I said, this is my mom and this is me as a baby. And she was so intrigued. And we put the photograph on the fridge and I was actually able to start looking at it. And it's little things like that, where we recognize, again, we're becoming present with ourselves. So we notice that was really painful yesterday. It's less painful today. Okay. I'm healing. That's a part. That's a sign of healing. It doesn't have to be, you know, 30 miles down the road kind of healing. It can be centimeters. It can be little increments of just remembering and integrating their memory and, and our own memories into the truth of what is right now. And, and it's not simple, but it's a necessary act to start noticing how we're feeling and being willing to take stock and being willing to be uncomfortable. And I think that's really the hardest part is in grief, we want to be comfortable as fast as possible. And so we rush through things thinking we can just strong arm and, and bring in the old bootstrap fallacy that we can pull ourselves up, which is uh, untrue. <laughs> and then we learn how we move through life in a new way and by being vulnerable and by being honest with what hurts and honest with what we can't accomplish because we're in pain, because our capacity to even exist or meal plan is diminished when we are grieving. There are so many things we just are like, ah, I used to love cooking and I've stirred this sauce down to a paste and, oh, I've burned part of it. All right. This is no longer a sauce. This is a broken pan. (laughs) This is a dead pan. That's me. Yeah. (laughs) But how can grievers protect themselves from the people in their lives that don't understand their grief? Mm, It's so hard because when you have like a close family or even just a close knit group of friends that are feeling invested and they care. Of course they care. Um, but they want to be involved and we don't owe our stories to anyone. We owe it to ourselves first. I think it's really meaningful. And I said this earlier, people tell on themselves 
pretty quickly. Like you can read the subtext of what they say and hear if they're genuinely showing up for you or if they have an agenda or feel like they're obligated to support you. And I think that that goes back to recognizing who are the people that I would call in a crisis. If someone is trying to show up and insert themselves, it's okay for me to push back and say, thank you, but that was actually harmful. And no, I don't want to talk about it. I think in grief, I lost a lot of friends because I'm no delicate flower and push back all the time on people who say platitudes or offer scriptures completely out of context in the event that it will help. But those are the harmful things that cause distance between us. And so I'm really a big fan of grievers finding their voice and being able to say things like, Hey, that platitude you just said to me, that caused distance between us. I know you wanted it to offer me comfort, but Holy hell that hurt. That didn't make me feel good because you were looking for, okay. And this is me. This part is my voice. You were looking to get out of your discomfort at the presence of my grief. And so you gave a platitude that makes you feel better thinking this makes me feel better. Hopefully it will help them. Truth is I'm not interested in what makes you feel better. I don't want to comfort you. You showed up here trying to comfort me. So instead I would like you to love me from a distance and I'll call you when I need you because Mm. that's not someone that's, that's going to be able to do it. And it's going to make people mad. It's offensive. (laughs) It sounds ungrateful, but the truth is it's a boundary that you have every right to enforce. I love the way you expressed it, but that is, that would be almost impossible for me to say to somebody. Exactly. And so that's where I have to, I often push back on myself and think like, okay, Mandy, you are again, pretty forward, pretty confident in saying big things like that. I think the boundary part of it is a matter of respecting yourself. And again, not betraying your own boundaries that you have set. And when it comes to community members trying to insert, or when you are trying to coordinate something and you don't need other people's help because their help would take more time. Um, like explaining how to fold the napkins. It's faster if I just do it. (laughs) I like to, I like to, in those moments, offer something else for them to help with. So those are people when I'm like, okay, cool. You really want to be here. I want to honor your heart because even though you're crossing a boundary for me, if I let you in this door, I can actually say, you know, I don't need any help with this part of my life right now. Thank you. But can I call you in two weeks and get a cup of coffee or in two weeks, can you bring me dinner? Because in two weeks, I have a feeling I'm going to crash and giving them a small assignment, but it's meaningful can be so helpful because you're not pushing that person out. I'm the person that says, I don't need that kind of influence if I don't want, if I'm not asking you in, but to create meaning for someone is it's moving you back toward them and everything we're doing, right. Moves us closer to, or further from one another and ourselves. And so enforcing your boundary in a way that is gentle, that is still open to people that doesn't just shut them all down. Now you can't have 32 dinners showing up next week, right? So there's going to be all these people offering things, but you can say, thank you so much. That wasn't super helpful, but I can be, I can give you ideas about what might be helpful in a couple of weeks. I'll get, can I get back to you or. And, you know, I had a similar situation because I had numerous people reach out immediately to me after a grief event and say, 
you know, we always like to bring a dinner or have the person over for dinner when something like this happens. I said, great. And they said, so can you just let us know when that would be? <laughs> well, I, I'm yeah. not going to call up somebody that I, they're my neighbors. They're really nice people, but I don't know them well enough to call up and say, now I want dinner now. Right. Yeah. It's such a funny thing to me, because even as you framed that, we like to bring people over when they have a grief event. Oh, is that what you like to do? Right. Yeah. Have you yeah. ever asked the griever what they would like to do? That's so interesting. Cause the last thing I want to do is go have an intimate dinner with someone I hardly know. Oh, yeah. I think they would have brought the food to me, but it's right. still, that wasn't completely clear. One family invited me over and never picked a date, you know? So you can't just knock on the door and say, I'm ready to eat now. <laughs> Two weeks later, you know? Yes. Yeah. Hope you got steaks. Cause I'm real hungry today. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> it's amazing. And, and that's a part of my work that I work on with um, grief supporters is we just don't know what we don't know. We don't know that that's not helpful. We don't know that that can actually add stress and harm and disconnection to that person's life. We have to learn how to unlearn platitudes and unlearn performative behaviors and actually show up in a way that is meaningful for the griever first and foremost, because otherwise we're serving our ego. We're serving our sense of obligation. We're serving this idea that in community, you must, you know, die to self and show up for others. All the, all the different things that we've got in our head that center us in the griever's story. And that's what I hear when you say there is genuine love in inviting you for a dinner, but to frame it as we like to do this when someone dies, that is centering the griever on your story. Cause I bet they feel really great about themselves, bringing grievers into their homes. And that's beautiful. But what would be different if they said, we love to feed people who are grieving what would be the best way? A gift card? Can I bring you dinner tomorrow night? Can I give you a date? Can I buy you groceries? What do you love? Do you want to go out to dinner by yourself? Do you want to go out to dinner with us? What, what puts you at the most ease in this? Because a gift like that has to cost you something. Bringing someone into your home and cooking an extra serving doesn't really cost you that much. I, I know that sounds probably insulting, but as someone who's opened their home many times, it is no big deal when extra friends show up for the meal. I'm like, it's fine. Easy. Like yeah. you can have my portion. I'll eat a sandwich. You know, like that's the spirit of hospitality is beautiful, but it has to cost you something. And grief is always going to cost us something just like life being involved intentionally in someone's life costs us something of value. And so being really <sighs> honest as a grief supporter means reckoning with your own motives and your own rational or your own reasons for getting involved. And, and also some of the people that you have to call to inform, oh, they start sobbing and it becomes all about them. Exactly. Comfort them. So if I got, if I got voice messages on my phone where people are sobbing, Oh my God, call me back right now. I can't stand that he died. And yeah. I don't call them back. I'm never going to call that person. Like never. never. That was my next question as well, because people call you and they're they're crying and they're upset and they have a legitimate reason to be upset, but it, it's Don't. not the time to have the person who has lost that person yeah. to ask them to to comfort you. Yeah. Yeah. It's that amazing homework. We don't 
put on grievers. <laughs> we don't realize, I think, I mean, cause they lost someone too. That's why you called them. Yeah. But it's a, we could all lose the same, like my sister and I, we lost a mom, but it, she was a different person to each of us. And so our way of showing up for one another in grief has to be generous in, in, in that as we are being asked to comfort other people as grief supporters, we have to be generous in how we approach grievers because yes, I've gotten terrible news. I am heartsick for my friend, my family, whomever has called me. And we quickly respond because we don't want to seem like, I don't know, in the back of my head, if I got a phone call that someone died and I waited two weeks to call, it feels like maybe I don't care. So like that quick response, I totally get that inclination, but holy crap to be just sobbing on the phone and, and expect clarity because they want answers. That's impossible. No one has answers, like not real, not satisfying answers. It's not like we'll get closure from that phone call. So it's, and the people that definitely- more likely do that are the people that really haven't even seen the person in a couple of years. And, you know, they're not even in touch and they're just more flabbergasted that this person mm-hmm. that they knew so well a long time ago, they're mm-hmm. calling you. It's really very difficult to deal with. Mm-hmm. I think what your message today is really strong for how we support people that are grieving as mm-hmm. well as how do we grieve. It's really important. Thank you. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, on a like note, you host two podcasts. Tell our listeners about them. I do. So the first one is not really grief related, although we talk about grief over there all the time. Um, The Uncomfortable Grace podcast is a show in its second season right now that looks at the messy middle parts of faith and how we can remain in the tension of the in-between moments in life and kind of unsurface what beauty lies beneath. And so we have authors and pastors and chaplains and speakers and lay people and friends. And it's just a wonderful place for me to be that person who says, this is uncomfortable. Let's talk about it. And they lean in every time. So that's that show. Um, the restorative grief podcast is well, restorative grief with Mandy K part is my show that I bring guests on to. And I also just have shorter 10 to 15 minute episodes that are all just different topics, whether they're relevant to what's going on in the world, whether something has triggered my grief story and I want to bring it to, to be vulnerable, but also express like, this is how I would move through this piece of my grief. Um, and it's really been a, an important part of bringing grief literacy is just being willing to talk about it, being willing to say, this is really impossible, but I'm with you. (laughs) This is a really (laughs) weird conversation, but I'm with you. And again, just touching on that, Hey, we're not alone if we are willing to be vulnerable and connect with each other. So that's why I do Hmm. both of those shows. That's great. Is, Is that what you'd like our listeners take away to be today? The whole, have the uncomfortable conversations. Heck yeah. It's the best thing. It's terrible. It's like having to go, get a massage or an adjustment. And then it hurts during, and it hurts for days after, but then you start to experience relief and the tension is actually melting. And you notice that your body is moving differently. You have this experience in life that is awful. And someone along the way taught us that being quiet about it was the way to address it and to heal from it. When the truth is the more you ignore a pain in your body, the more likely it is to become inflamed and exacerbated. 
the same is true with loss. And so the more you are willing to say, even just bringing it up can be hard. So I just tell people, walk up to someone you trust and say, I have a terrible conversation I need to have. It's very uncomfortable. Can you please be brave with me? Can you please be, let me be vulnerable and don't fix anything. I just need someone to, to bear witness to my story or bear witness to this thing that happened. That disarms the fixer in all of us. That is the thing that pushes our people back on their heels to say, oh, they just need me to listen. They don't need advice. Okay. And yeah. even being willing to say, oops, that, that's advice. Don't, don't advise me right now. I just need a witness. And that's an amazing thing. So yes, please, everyone find your witnesses. Oh, that's great. Thank you so much, Mandy. Mm -hmm. Our guest today on Late Boomers has been Mandy Capehart, author of the book, Restorative Grief, and founder of the Restorative Grief Project, an online coaching group. Connect with Mandy on Instagram or Twitter at Mandy Capehart and listen to her podcast, Restorative Grief and the Uncomfortable Grace. Her website is mandycapehart.com. Thank you again, Mandy. You're very welcome, ladies. Thanks for having me. And we remind our listeners, please, to follow us on Instagram, on Late Boomers, and at I am Kathy Worthington, and at I am Mary Elkins. Write to us on our website, lateboomers.biz, B-I-Z, with any comments or questions you might have. Thanks again, Mandy. You're very welcome. Thank you for joining us on Late Boomers, the podcast that is your guide to creating a third act with style, power, and impact. Please visit our website and get in touch with us at lateboomers.biz. If you would like to listen to or download other episodes of Late Boomers, go to ewnpodcastnetwork.com. This podcast is also available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and most other major podcast sites. We hope you make use of the wisdom you've gained here and that you enjoy a successful third act with your own style, power, and impact. Calling all speakers. E-Women Network has speaking engagements all over North America that must be filled. Are you a gifted messenger, author, expert, or successful entrepreneur that can help women entrepreneurs grow their businesses? Our mission is to help 1 million fulfilled women each achieve $1 million in annual revenue. If you're a speaker that can help women prosper, go to eWomenNetwork.com and sign up as a pro member of our Speakers Network. That's eWomenNetwork.com. Have you ever asked yourself this question? Why is it so hard to make a buck? <laughs> I know I have. Hi, I'm Sandra Yancey, founder and CEO of eWomen Network. What I have discovered after going from the brink of bankruptcy to running a multi-million dollar award-winning business is this. You can't build a million dollar dream hanging around minimum wage mindsets. My mission is one million women entrepreneurs generating one million dollars in annual revenue. So here's what I've done. I've created the mother of all entrepreneur success programs that you can access online on your time. It's called Monetize Me Now. It's a seven module online course that is 100% my success formula 
covering mindset, mission, management, motivation, marketing, and measure. Come on, take my hand and I'll show you the way to learn to earn flowing revenue for your business. Visit monetizemenow.com for details. Thanks for listening. This is the EWN Podcast Network.